0: This is the SparkCast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Michael Fukushima spent the majority of his career fighting for improved diversity and inclusion behind the scenes of the National Film Board of Canada. This wasn't an accidental role. Michael saw the advantage of working for change from inside an organization and dedicated much of his career to advancing minority voices within the organization. The road was not always easy, but the fruits of his labor are evident in the legacy he left at the National Film Board after a 31-year career with the institution, including new mandates for more diversity and inclusivity, as well as the ongoing Hothouse program. We recently had a chance to speak with Michael about his career as a filmmaker, a producer, and a champion for the underrepresented. Here's my conversation with Michael Fukushima. I thought um, I thought we'd start by talking a little bit about uh, your youth and what you were like as a kid. So talk a little bit about growing up, I don't know if you grew up right in, in Toronto or the Toronto area or just in Ontario in general, I'm not actually 100% Sure.
1: Ah well, uh, my misbegotten youth. <laughs> um, I'm actually an army brat, and um, so my childhood, uh, literally from the time I was born until oh, until my mid-teens, um, my family, uh, because of my father. My father was a career military officer. Uh, we moved. Oh, you know, sometimes every year, uh, every other year, every, every couple of years. So until, you know, the first 16 years of my life or so, I probably lived in 10, 9, 10 different places uh, across Canada and uh, around the world.
0: Oh, wow. I didn't
1: realize that. Yeah. And I'm an only child. And so, um, you know, I had all of the, the uh, I had all of those difficulties inherent in being an only child, and being plunked down into a new location, you know, every year, every couple of years. So, uh, you know, so it, it kind of built up some defenses, some calluses, and forced me to, to uh, you know, to, to to be quickly adaptable to things.
0: Were you creative as a kid, too?
1: Um, Yeah, I think so. Um, You know, I think I got that from my father. My father, uh, even though he was a career military officer, when he was younger, he had wanted to be an architect. But, um, you know, he was the child of immigrants. Uh, They had... uh, they had gone through the whole uh wartime experience of the Japanese Canadians at n b c um, and uh, his parents my grandparents um you know they they actively suppressed his desire to uh, to be an architect and you know he he ended up um being doing practical things um, so uh So, but, you know, when I was younger, we would sit and we would draw and he taught me how to draw, you know, do portraits and landscapes and things like that. And, um, you know, I didn't think about it uh, at the time, but yeah, I think my father, uh, you know, he has kind of, he kind of fulfilled his artistic ambitions through me.
0: And, and it's it's funny you say that because um, I, I had seen another interview with you and you talked a little bit about how there was also the pressure for you to, to be more practical with your career choices. I know that you went to school, or at least started to, in an engineering, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> as it happens, that pressure came from my mother. Oh. So my mother is uh you know she's a japanese immigrant so she's a first generation uh japanese immigrant and for her uh for her also art was you know not not the deal track for me so um so because i was academically strong um you know i said okay well what do i want to you know what what could i do that wouldn't absolutely crush me Crush my spirit, and uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, I'm pretty good at fixing things, and I'm interested in uh, mechanics and uh, how things work. So, uh, so yeah, I um, I pursued engineering at university, but uh, very, very quickly, um, both came to the realization and had it pointed out to me uh, that uh, that I really wasn't cut out for it.
0: Uh, was that? I'm curious about that shift because I know that you were at, um, university for engineering. Then you, you went to school for animation. That realization that engineering wasn't the thing for you. Was that one, something difficult to realize because you had been a good student? And two, can you talk a little bit about how that, that shift? Uh, impacted, maybe it didn't, but if it did have an impact in the your relationship with your parents, because all of a sudden you're doing something that, you know, they weren't really on board for.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. It was a difficult shift for me. You know, I'm a responsible and dutiful uh, son of Asians, of uh, Japanese, Japanese Canadians. And so, you know, it was... I took my filial responsibility of doing well, uh, very seriously. So, um, but you know, I, at, at Queens, I struggled. I was not having fun. I did not enjoy the culture. I didn't enjoy the engineering culture there. I mean, Queens is an exception. It's, it really is quite, I, uh, you know, back then it was very toxic. I understand now it's slightly less toxic. But, you know, all of that just made me very, very unhappy. Um, So, but, you know, I, I, so I made a deal with my parents. I said, look, um, let me try something else. Let me try something that I think I will enjoy. And, um, you know, if I, if I'm doing well in that, let me proceed. But if I don't, and you know if it turns out that i'm also not good at that or not interested in that i will go back and i will complete uh, an engineering degree as you know as painful as it might be to me and so you know my mother very reluctantly said you know okay um that's a deal i think my father he he never said it and uh, he never would have said it i think he uh, no for sure he he really wanted me to succeed in the arts, so you know maybe he maybe he ran some interference for me at home I don't know but uh, yeah you know that they they agreed to give me a chance so uh, so Sheridan I went
0: and what was your experience like being at Sheridan after that not so pleasant experience of Queens
1: <laughs> you know it's like night and day um, you know it's uh engineering is engineering uh university was extremely competitive um being at sheridan college was like i was in a community Mm -hmm. everyone was you know everyone wanted to succeed they wanted their friends to succeed they wanted their mates to succeed so you know we all we all kind of helped each other encouraged each other we were all you know we were all pretty decent artists and um and so you know it was always there there was that gentle rivalry of wanting to be you know the better artist but we all recognized that um you know we had you know that that kind of inherent imbued talent in ourselves and in each other and so and so, so, you know, it was, um, no, it was, it was, it was fun and it was pleasant and it was uh, open and convivial and yeah, just, you know, it was like I had gone from a, a cave into, you know, into the light.
0: Can you t- talk a little bit more about your experience as a student there and, and finding your way to what kind of filmmaker you wanted to be?
1: well Sheridan college so i you know i don't know if all of your uh, uh listeners will know what Sheridan college was like but uh back when i was there um in the uh, uh mid 80s it really was um a place that I was trying to uh, graduate folks who could join the industry mm-hmm. um you know the the the, the task was Find jobs, animation studio jobs for all these kids who are going through the program, and you know the idea of being an animation artist was, you know, it wasn't so much top of top of mind. It really was uh, becoming the best damned animation technician. Uh, you could be. I was in the two D program, the what was called back then the classical animation programs. So um, you know it was finding folks' jobs at Nelvena or the commercial studios in Toronto or for the really exceptional kids, um, you know, getting them gigs uh, down in L.A. And, um, you know, so I I was kind of heading, you know, thinking about that. That was my path for the first year um, of Sheridan. And then uh, I can't remember what year it was in, But um, maybe it was in first year, but we had a course that was called the History of Animation. And it was taught by Kai Pindal, who, you know, very famous, very accomplished, uh, passed away a couple of years ago, uh, sadly. And he, you know, he was an animation filmmaker. So he had come over from Denmark. He had worked on the, you know, some commercial things uh, over in Europe but he came over and he joined the film board in the uh, 60s and 70s. And so here's this guy who you know, had worked in studios, knew all about industrial animation and what that was, but also had you know, about a decade of NFB experience under his belt. And his job was to teach us the entire scope of history of animation and so he would show us independent animation from the time european animation and you know for me most significantly he showed us tons of nfb mm-hmm. animation and um i remember it was uh it was ryan larkin's walking mm-hmm. that uh, that he showed one day and i i was just blown away i i had never imagined animation could look like that. And um, in that instant I said, that's that's the place I need to land. I need to find a way to get to the NFB because that's the kind of film I either want to make or I want to be part of making. And um, so yeah, it was, you know, it was down to Kai Bindle and uh, his history of animation and Ryan Larkin's walking.
0: I think it's fascinating that um, you're always kind of the rebel, the one on the outside. So, you know, <laughs> you, you, you go to school for engineering, turns out that's not the thing you want to do, and then you go to an animation school where they're trying to teach you to to fit into this very square box, and you're like, no, I'm going to do this other thing.
1: <laughs> well, you know, who knows? I, I, it's, it's, it's a little bit uh, oxymoronic because I am Japanese-Canadian, and so, you know. The, the, the idea that uh, the idea is i should actually be a model minority right i should toe the line i should uh, i shouldn't actually protest maybe maybe somewhere buried deep down inside um, this whole thing has been me uh, me wanting to prove that a, that a asian canadian is more than just the guy who says sure i can do that i will do that they'll say no i don't want to do that i want to do something different
0: well, and I, I kind of wanted to talk about this because it, it's such. It feels to me like such an integral part of um, your creative career, and also your career at the National Film Board. This idea that you're opening doors for others, and and your mandate has always seemed to be, or felt to me to be, like this very um, this very inclusive and bringing people in that might usually be on the outside. And that starts very early with you, like your your first short film for the National Film Award, uh, Minoru. And it also ties into, you know, your personal life and, and your life with your parents and specifically your father. And I was wondering if we could st- start by talking about Minoru and, and how did that project come about? And I'm, I'm curious about if it was difficult... Um, to get that story out of your dad, because it seems like, it, it, you know, clearly you were a family that um, was very supportive, but it doesn't seem like there was a lot of talking about the past. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you know, it's it's actually uh, that question, Marina, is the question that um, uh, every Japanese Canadian of my generation has been asked uh, since since, uh, since, the redress uh, mm-hmm. settlement of 19, uh, 1988, I guess it was. Um, you know, Japanese Canadians, maybe Asian Canadians in general, you know, they, they tend not to talk about um, the past and especially immigrants. Uh, maybe it's true of all immigrants, uh, but you know, they want to look to the future and um it, you know it was the case, there's a there's a saying in japanese shikata uh, ga which means which uh, roughly translates to you know the past can't be helped mm-hmm. and so the idea is the past is the past you know you just have to uh move forward best you can and um you know it's absolutely true that uh you know all through, my, uh, all through my childhood, through my youth. My father never talked about uh, the internment. Uh, my mother never talked about her wartime experience in Japan. Um, so, you know, I, I, knew, I knew that my father must have gone through this, but I didn't know his particular story. And um, in the late eighties, I started to get involved in the Japanese Canadian community in Toronto of steam, there was an end in sight by the time I got involved. Um, it was pretty clear that the Mulroney government was uh, was going to do something to uh, to make amends to the community. And, uh, you know, I've, I just got caught up in, in that community uh, enthusiasm and anticipation and excitement. And, um, you know, I, I took that as a moment just to one day ask my father to tell me, you know, tell me what had happened, and you know his response uh, startled me a bit. And he said, "Oh, oh, that's that's great, Michael. I thought you would never ask about my past, given that you're part of the the movement. I'm so happy you finally asked me. And you know this notion that um, that he would never have volunteered it, but." Was just waiting for an invitation, uh, you know. That was that was quite striking and uh, startling to me. But once we started talking about it, um, you know, it just just couldn't stop. My father's not a particularly talkative man, um, but once we started, uh, you know, I couldn't stop him. So you know, we, we so over the course of a couple of days, I recorded several hours um, of conversation. With him, and um, and yeah, you know, the re- the the the, uh, the Mulroney government um, made its apology, set up all of the redress um, uh, commitments, um, and and that was in eighty eight, and in eighty nine, um, you know, I had been in touch with the head of the uh, NFB's animation studio for a couple of years. At that point, I just, you know sent him a, a two-pager that said that, you know, I don't know if you knew, know anything about the internment of Japanese Canadians, but I'd like to make a short film about my father's experience. And I think it could be quite artful. I'd like to marry uh, my father's narrative with uh, sort of Japanese uh, Brush painting elements, and I could, you know, I could make it poetic, not necessarily didactic, you know, all of the the kind of uh, expected arty animation things uh, that I had uh, that I had been building up inside of me. And um, to my surprise, uh, late in eighty nine, he wrote back to me and said, "This is great, you know, if you can send me." Uh, you know, if he can send me a proposal with a rough storyboard, we can actually finance this. Um, and, you know, I was okay, great, I'll have to do a bit of research. Um, It would be great if I could go to BC and, you know, tour the internment camps. And he said, sure, we'll book you a ticket and get you out there. So um in the autumn of 89, I went out and... um you know, I went to New Denver, at the locations to Denver, Tashmi, Caslow, um, and just checked at these places, did a lot of sketching, took a lot of photos, um, came back, made my proposal, and found out, you know, found out uh, early in uh, 1990 that uh, the film board was interested in pursuing it, and then found out from the exec producer that, uh, in fact, um, a commission, I believe it was called a commission um, or an agency, had been set up inside of multiculturalism, uh, the multiculturalism ministry, uh, specifically to produce uh, media material about the Japanese Canadian internment, and they had a lot of proposals and projects on the go for books and um, for, uh, for art shows and for a couple of uh, theater pieces, but they didn't have anything for film. And so they leapt on the chance. When my when this person, Doug McDonald, went to Ottawa, they leapt on the chance to have a film. And uh, so, you know, this, uh, this agency fully funded uh, the financing for the film, uh, gave it to the NFB, and the NFB um, uh, gave me a green light to, uh, to get started. I started the film in the summer you know, after the research phase. I started the film in the summer of 1990, and um, like 18, 18 months later, 19 months later, Uh, So sometime in uh, 92, uh, the film was in the can.
0: So you, it was, it it feels like it might've been a little bit of luck uh, being in the right place at the right time. Oh, it's a lot of luck. (laughs) (laughs) And also fulfillment of your dream. You know, here you had been a student at Sheridan thinking, that's what I want to do. I want to work at the NFB. And here you are just a few years later at the NFB.
1: Yeah. You know, (sighs) Yeah, recently I have uh, a colleague of mine, an animation colleague of mine, was posting that uh, some of his younger, he's a teacher, animation teacher, and some of his younger students, um, they're a little bit resentful of the fact that luck seems to play a big part in uh, uh, people's successes in the industry. Um, But, you know, luck, it, it... It always is. Serendipity is always such a huge factor in where we land. Um, But, you know, I had also been preparing the ground Mm -hmm. for this luck to happen. So, you know, when I wrote to Doug McDonnell, the NFB, about this particular project, it wasn't the first time that I had been in touch with them. I had been, you know, I had built up a relationship with him over a couple of years we had seen each other you know we met at the ottawa festival every year and we would have coffee and chat and you know he would ask me what ideas i had so you know i had kind of uh you know i furrowed the ground for that and you know i had um you know the I, i i pitched this idea to the nfb i proposed this idea to the nfb because you know i based on both the documentaries and, uh, you know, just, just just the ethos of the NFB, I thought this was, you know, this is the kind of project that the NFB could really uh, get behind. So, you know, I had prepared by, uh, you know, by making sure the NFB knew who I was and uh, what I could do and what I wanted to do. And I had, you know, done my research, And uh, really thought about uh, what kind of films the film board, uh, you know, what kind of films would fit within the film board's DNA. And um, so, you know, I had prepared a lot, but yeah, the timing, you know, all of those things just kind of came together, you know, in late 1989 and bang, then it all just kind of happened. It's like those, um, it's like those stories of you know actors who, you know, overnight success after twenty years of hard work. You know, it's it's that kind of story.
0: Yeah, I'm curious. I I want to kind of mix two things here, but I know that you you know you were a filmmaker early in your career as like as far as a director, but you've been in the industry for a long time and you've seen the change of the industry over the years. And I'm curious because. It feels to me like the business, in air quotes, of being an animator. Like, it's one thing to be an artist and to know what you want to do. But can you talk a little bit about, has there been a cha- a shift in the way that we prepare students for being, like, independent creators? Have Has there been a shift to give them more of the tools to be, like, that business person? Um,
1: there has been a shift, for sure um you know when i when i uh, entered the industry in 85 you know i had zero skills i had zero business skills at all i didn't even really know how to put together a portfolio i certainly didn't know how to write a cover letter i didn't know how to network um, i didn't know who to network um uh, so you know from 85 to now, yeah, the change is profound. But I still think that um, uh, graduates from animation programs still don't have enough, you know, they don't get enough background in nuts and bolts, nuts and bolts, businessy things. So, you know, looking at a contract, understanding a contract, understanding, uh, you know, understanding that writing and you know writing proposals and writing letters to studios is as important you know, is as an as important a skill as their drawing ability um and uh, so you know and self promotion uh, i think self promotion continues to be um a weak spot for uh, in in teaching Now, you know, given the, you know, given the recent boom in social media, Instagram and stuff like that, there's, there are definitely a lot more very capable young artists who are getting their names out there and getting discovered via Instagram more than, uh, more than anything else. But it is uneven. And, you know, I think those kids, um, you know, they learn those skills on their own. Or from friends who are adept, it's not the kind of thing yet that's um, that's regularly part of the class curriculum. And you know I think it I think it I think education does a disservice to these young graduates if it isn't giving them, you know the as you describe, those basic business skills to be able to navigate the world on their own as much as they give them, uh, you know, the great uh, artistic and uh, technical art skills um, that they do. And so, yeah, for sure, you know, it's probably a 300%, 400%, 500% um, increase in capabilities, but we really, we were starting at zero. <laughs>
0: um, so with that, I, I want to go back a little bit to, to your career at the NFB. So, you know, you make Minoru at the NFB, and then you stay and you make another you make another film right you, you make a um, yep. an educational film yep
1: yeah so you know the way things were working uh, back then in the early 90s you know there was uh, there were still staff filmmakers at the NFB so when I started there you know when I started in 1990 um, there were in the English animation studio I think there were eight staff filmmakers. So these are folks who had, uh, you know, been freelancers at the NFB say in the seventies and the early eighties. Then there was a shift in policy at the film board in the uh, mid eighties, early, early eighties, where those freelancers who had been there for quite some time suddenly became staff filmmakers. And, um, you know and that was great because you know they had the, suddenly they had the luxury and the freedom to be able to really think about the films they wanted to make and spend the time needed to craft them and uh, complete them uh, but what it meant for um for the uh for the younger filmmakers in the independents was you know there were like two spots available for freelancers every year so um so you know it was it was very competitive for the freelancers and one of the things that the english studio did to try to you know provide some continuity for its younger filmmakers was it went to ottawa every year and you know went to different agencies and said you know here we are we can provide you you know we can we can uh, work with you to make informational, educational, animated short films that will serve your purpose, that will be artful and interesting, that serves our purpose, and that gives us a chance to uh, to sustain some of these younger filmmakers who are coming in. So um, I made a film called Plumbum Conundrum mm-hmm. for uh, Health Canada uh, that was all about the dangers of... Lead paint and lead poisoning in the Canadian home, um, and uh, you know, I, as as did almost all of the NFB filmmakers who worked on these uh, sponsored films at the time, I used it as a chance to experiment with technique, and um, you know, storytelling, and you know, just to just to hone my craft. Um, uh, a little bit, and you know, was was uh, eternally grateful to uh, to my producer David Beryl uh, for giving me the chance to you know stay on at the studio and make a make another film.
0: So, so you make two films there as a filmmaker. Can you talk about the shift of going from an independent fa- filmmaker working with the National Film Board to working at the National Film Board? Yeah.
1: Well, you know, so I, I, I've I've hinted at some of my frustrations and just frustrations in general uh, that uh, that freelancers had, you know, the mm-hmm. limited opportunities, um, uh, you know, all of that. Um, but you know, I also had my frustrations um, with the place being very white, yeah. um, and you know, I was there was Ishu Patel. Uh, who was a staff filmmaker, uh, South Asian descent. Um, and there was me and, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of hard to be in a place, uh, that's that white, um, when you're trying to tell stories that are culturally specific to yourself. And, um, so I was frustrated on both counts, the limited access for freelancers and um, just kind of the, the lack of opportunity for uh, uh, artists of color uh, to find a place at the board. And, you know, I was I was part of an activist, uh, part of, you know, part of the whole um, uh, uh, racial justice uh, movement that was going on across across Canada in the early 90s Um, and I was you know I was thinking well you know I could I could leave the film board and agitate for change from the outside be a real loud door bashing um, activist from the outside or I could um, uh, you know maybe there's a way to get into the film board and subversively change it from the inside. You know, there is, there seemed to be little opportunity to do the outside, with the inside. I think so I was, uh, I was uh, settling myself to, uh, to leaving and, uh, you know, be, going back to being an independent and, um, uh, you know, advocating for change from the outside when suddenly uh, a producer position uh, freed up. Uh, one of the one of the longtime producers uh, retired and you know I had never produced I had answer uh, I had done you know I had produced some small commercial projects industrial projects for other folks in Toronto but you know I wasn't really a producer um, but I you know said well this is my chance this might be the only chance I get so I applied and um, yeah. To my surprise, uh, because I do think there were some actual producers who had applied for the job. Um, I was given the job and I think I got the job because um, because I was a practical animator, so I was a filmmaker and you know David Verrill was the head of the studio at the time and he had hired Marcy Page. Uh, Marcy was his first hire. Uh, Producer hire, and um, you know he was clearly uh, you know fond of folks who were filmmakers who could bring their filmmaking expertise into the world of project management and administration and producing because that that was Marcy's profile as well. Both Marcy and I were former filmmakers, Mm -hmm. and um, so yeah, so that was it and. I, you know, once I got the job, I took it very seriously that my job was going to be to remedy those frustrations that I had felt when I was a freelancer by opening the place up.
0: I'm curious, have you ever felt Resentment isn't the right word, but do you have you ever do you have you ever felt that maybe you left behind your career as a director for the greater good at the at the um, cost of not being a director anymore?
1: Um, no, I have never resented. I've never regretted. I've never regretted giving up uh, being a filmmaker. Um, you know, I had reached a point in my life. You know, much like when uh, I retired, um, I had reached a point where um, really my goal was to do greater good. You know, I was part of so many community activist movements that were trying to do those very things. It was part of who I was at the time. It was a huge part of who I was at the time. And um, so, no, for me, uh, giving up being a filmmaker um, was a small price for mm. what I hoped I would be able to do uh, in the way of change um, from the inside. And, you know, I had been, you know, another honest thing is I had been a filmmaker then for, you know, a good, what, decade, uh, decade and a bit. Um, As you well know, Marina, uh, making animation, animated, you know, directing, creating animated films is hard, slogging work, takes a long time. And, um, you know, part of me had also had enough of that Mm. as
0: well. So you're a producer at the National Film Board. And as a as a young producer, you know, you, you you said you didn't know really what you were doing. This was kind of like a shot in the dark when you applied <laughs> for the position. Can you talk about finding your feet and kind of, you know, finding your way as a producer at a studio that is very creatively involved with the filmmakers?
1: Yeah, well, um, so, you know, as it, hap- as it turns out, uh, having an engineer's mind was a great help. So, you know, being able to be logical and rational um, helped with all of the business stuff. And I was able to get my head around contracts and uh, budgets and things like that quite easily. Uh, So that was that was huge. That half of my brain helped enormously uh, to my surprise, actually. Um, And then, you know, just. I found just being empathetic and, you know, understanding intimately uh, how animation filmmakers and filmmakers were thinking and what their anxieties were and, you know, how, you know, knowing intimately the things I could fix and how to speak to those filmmakers um, and just how to be empathetic and sympathetic. Uh, Those um Uh, Those were extremely useful to me in my first couple of years. You know, I was, the fact that I cared about the filmmakers I worked with um, made up for uh, the deficiencies I had those first, um, those first couple of years, just, you know, in terms of practice management things.
0: I'm curious about the, because it feels to me like you kind of had a dual career at the National Film Board. So you were producing films and projects, but you were also working from the inside, you know, with your ultimate goal of changing the culture and, and the, <laughs> the, 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 the way that the National Film Board does things. Was it an uphill struggle? This internal, like sh- trying to shift, like an organization that's you know that old, that ingrained, like very much working, like for decades working within you know certain constraints. I- I- I'm I'm curious about, like I'm assuming there was lots of internal struggle and strife to try to make change.
1: <laughs> um, absolutely. Uh, you know, here's a case in point. So I joined the, you know, I became a producer in uh, 97. And from 97 until the moment I left, I used every moment I could, every chance I could to advocate for uh, more diversity, racial diversity, diversity of voices um, uh, within the film board. Both filmmakers, but also, you know, people, employees, folks working at the film board so that's what 20 plus years of uh, quite open advocacy and uh, championing uh, for these things and every few years uh you know, there would be other champions and advocates who came uh, um, you know by the end uh, by last year you know there are a good uh, half a dozen dozen of us within the film board really pushing for these changes, but really it was last year, 2020, when the film board uh, finally came out and issued its, um, it's, uh, its policy position on, uh, diversity and inclusion. So, you know, that's kind of the answer to the question is, yeah, it, you know, it, Takes a lot of work and a long time to, um, to to cause that kind of radical change in a in a, in in such a historically steeped organization like the board. And and I'll be honest in this: had there not been the revolution last summer, the Black Lives Matter revolution, the George Floyd murder all of that international activism I think I would still be fighting and debating inside the film board about the the, the usefulness the validity the need for uh, for this kind of uh, open and inclusive view that that summer last summer galvanized the world but it also um, it also forced the board, to realize, you know, this is serious stuff and we have to address it seriously.
0: It's shocking to me because, I mean, you've been fighting for this for your entire career and I can't imagine that the board would have been as open to making that shift had you not been there with, you know, the the handful of people that had been working with you to, to, to set the groundwork to make that happen.
1: Yeah, you know that's that's absolutely true, Marina. You know it takes it takes the racialized folks to you know to do that foundational work and to force the established folks to see you know to see what's missing in their organizations and to see the privileges they've had uh, within the organization, um, you know. My what I do I do continue to lament the fact that um, you know I'm Asian Canadian. Most of the activists inside the film board have been uh, Asian Canadian. We have had very few uh, Black Canadians and even fewer uh, Indigenous folks who've been you know who become part of the. Uh, part of the part of the DNA of the place, and you know, as employees and able to affect uh, that kind of change, um, you know, it's been. I'm going to be broadly honest here. It's been the accessible minorities, right, mm-hmm. the Asians, who have been able to uh, infiltrate the place and kind of agitate. Mm-hmm. The more uh, you know, the more racially distinct. Uh, uh, folks of color, black folks, Indigenous folks—they, uh, you know, there is still a big struggle um, on that front for the place, for all. I think for all media, uh, media institutions and agencies in this country.
0: I, I'm curious. I mean, I, I, it, it's 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 difficult to be the sole center was there ever, but I mean, I I really feel like this has been like your calling for your life, and I I find it difficult to think that you would ever walk away from it. But did you ever, like, did the, did the thought ever come to you, like, I've been doing this for so long, I'm tired, I, I I'm just going to step away. Was that ever something that crossed your mind, or was that never an option?
1: Uh, absolutely, that that has crossed my mind many times. Um, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's true that, um, uh, that the, the kind of history and experience that I carry, uh, would still be, would still be important to the film board and probably is still important to the film board. But, you know, I think what's even more important now, now that the film board has issued and, and these other agencies have issued, their, their uh, platforms and their policies and positions on uh, diversity and inclusion. I think this is the moment, crucially, when the baton has to be handed off, because now is the time for new voices and different ideas to come in and actually figure out how to manifest these changes for the modern world. So my battle was against the world, you know, Canada, Canadian media of the 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. What's needed now are folks in the organization who can say, these are the things, these are the changes that are needed to keep us going forward into 2030, 2040, 2050. And that's not going to be me, because my focus has been for so long on rectifying history i think it, it it's crucial that the voices now be fresh voices who can who can say the history is done we're here we're only going to move forward from now on
0: was did you kind of feel like you were given the opportunity to 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 retire because some of the work that you had done had finally been sort of come to fruition with this you know, the 2020. The National Film were making that decision in 2020. Was it at that point that you kind of kind of go, okay, my fight here is done. I can take a break. <laughs> um, uh,
1: certainly, that was one of the things. But you know, I also feel like uh, let's come back to animation uh, mm-hmm. specifically. You know, I also think that the animation studio, the folks in the studio, the two producers who are still there uh, my colleagues in French animation, I think, you know, they are, they are also at a kind of a creative crossroads. We've done a lot of really interesting experimental, uh, inventive, inventive for the film board, um, stuff the past decade or so, um, and I think it's, you know, it is, and, and, you know, so, so there is a reputation, a nice reputation established, not just of working with the best animation filmmakers, but now also of working with some of the most inventive animation filmmakers. And I think it's, you know, this was the moment, this was also a moment to hand off to somebody who can come in and say, you know, this, we now have this great legacy of, excellence but also true inventiveness Mm -hmm. and how can we how can we keep manifesting that and keep nourishing that for the next 30 years because you know 30 years in the same place uh you know it's it's absolutely true that a lot of my ideas were you know similar ideas I was I, you know, I don't want to say I was recycling ideas but you know I could see my idea of animation in the animation studio my I wasn't really seeing as much variation in my thinking as I did maybe 10 years ago. And so it was becoming clear that it needed, it needs somebody who has a wider scope of what's possible.
0: Is it, is that a difficult realization to, to know? No, <laughs> I, I like really as, as a creative person, which you, you clearly are, is it, is it difficult I mean, I think it's so amazing that you you're cognizant of that. Is 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 that a difficult realization to to know that you're kind of you need a fresh fresh something to kind of like restart your creative juices?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's difficult. You know, it's nobody nobody likes to come to the realization that um, uh, you know that that they're phoning it in is such a horrible term, but you know, that, that they're kind of, uh, uh, phoning it in and, um, you know, it's, uh, but yeah, at the end of the day, um, I just, I just, and I'm, I'm, I'm also old, right. I'm 60. Um, there are other things I want to do. Uh, but I want to be able to do them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't want to be 70 and retired because at 70, there are fewer things physically that I could probably do. So all of those things just, they, they just told me, yeah, you know, you're, you're kind of saying the same things over and over again. You seem to be pushing the same kinds of projects and filmmakers over and over again. There are other things you want to do, Michael. Um, Why don't you just step away and let somebody else come in and you, for the next few years, just do the things that you want to do. And so that's the track that I'm on now.
0: I want to get back to that track to, track in a second but before we move <laughs> away from the National Film Board altogether I I feel like I need to ask this because to me even though I know of the National Film Board I feel like it would be a missed opportunity not to ask you about the nuts and bolts of how the film board actually works if you're, you know, a filmmaker. Can you talk a little bit about the process of, you know, how do you, if you're a young filmmaker or, you know, an established filmmaker and you want to work with the NFB, what's kind of like the process to get your foot in the door?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I intimated a, a bit of it earlier. Uh, part of it, you know, we are we're all human beings. It's, you know, this is just a fact of life. And human beings are all about socializing and relationships. And so a key piece of the puzzle for creators who want to work with the film board is to, is to find a way to develop a relationship with, um, in, in the case of the studios with the producers. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't have to be anything unseemly. It's just, you know, go to festivals, introduce yourself, um, Make a great film, get it in a festival. You know, be open to uh, uh, inquiries from these producers. Um, But you know, if you don't have a film and you you want to make a film, go to a festival, introduce yourself, be pleasant. Understand that the producer is probably you know seeing eighty folks over the course of their time at the festival, so they don't have a whole lot of time to chat um, and might not remember you the next time uh, they see you. But, you know, spend a couple of minutes, a few minutes with them. uh, Let them know what your interest is. And, you know, then in six months or the next year, reintroduce yourself and hopefully in that time you've got a project uh, that you can propose and you know re- the film board as, as you know from our catalog marina the film board is a very peculiar place and it makes a particular kind of animated film the you know the the, the range is wide but there, you know the kinds of films or the kinds of animation that the film board doesn't do is very clear. It's very prescribed, you know, so take a look at the catalog, especially the recent catalog, and just get a good sense of the, you know, what's in the zeitgeist at the film board and build a proposal, uh, that's based around that. Um, and, you know, those are the ways that for me, that those are the best ways to, um, uh, uh to make yourself known to the film board is build that build that friendly relationship with a producer and ideally also you know make a couple of short films very very short films get them into festivals you know make them the best you can so that at a festival when you meet an nfb producer you can say oh and by the way my film X, Y, Z is playing in this screening. Uh, I would love it if you could take a look at it because then the producer gets to see your work in that, you know, in that most excellent public context, right? Well, hopefully it'll be public again, Mm -hmm. Um, but they'll be in a cinema. They'll be watching your film with 200 other people. They'll get a sense of how your art works with audiences engages with audiences and it's actually those films that you make that will have the most uh, lasting impression on the in the producers so for me that's those are uh, those are really the the, the best ways to uh, to get yourself known
0: it's funny that you mention um how there's a, a... A prescribed like the the National Film Board has a very unique; it has its own style, basically a film. But you actually spearheaded the the Hot House program, which feels a little bit outside. It feels to the left of what the National Film Board was doing, and it's by far probably one of my the the funnest programs I think the National <laughs> Film Board does. And and the weirdest little tidbits come out of that. Can you talk a little bit about? Um, what the inspiration was for Hot House and how that has developed and changed over the years.
1: Yeah, it, you know, I'm I'm extremely proud of uh, of the Hot House. David Verrill and I co-created that, um, uh, and and uh, Mohamedian and uh, Yelena Popovich were the current producers. They they've quite refined it into into something really interesting, but you know, the idea, yeah, it's it is. Uh, it's a very different uh, process and procedure from, uh, from conventional NFB films. Uh, but the idea behind it was you know, it takes, it, it easily takes two years and many tens, sometimes even hundreds of thousands of dollars to make a, a, a conventional NFB animated film. And uh, what David and I saw was, uh, you know, it was putting undue uh, pressure, uh, both practical, physical pressure, but also uh, emotional uh, strain and pressure on filmmakers. You know, these are people who take the NFB very seriously uh, and take the legacy of the NFB very seriously. And, you know, they get a first chance. There's a whole lot of money. And, you know, Norman McLaren and René Jodoin and Caroline Leaf's legacies are weighing on their shoulders. And, you know, we, we had breakdowns, we had uh, projects that just didn't cut the mustard and, you know, disappointment over those things from both the film board and the filmmakers uh, got to be quite profound. So we came up with this idea of doing what are now called, I guess, boot camps. Mm -hmm. Um, we, you know, we went for the more poetic approach and called it a hothouse, um, of, you know, bringing in young filmmakers, giving them the chance to do that complete production cycle, you know, so every hothouse film goes through every single production phase that a conventional NFB film does, proposals, storyboards, reviews, um, edits, uh, uh, working with an editor, working with a composer, sound designer, mixing all of that, working with a producer regularly, all of those things the Hothouse folks have to do. But they do it in three months. And so, and, and you know, it's a one-minute film. And so the pressure on the filmmaker is brief. It's three months. Um, the weight of the legacy is lessened because, you know, it's just, it's just air quotes, my turn to air quotes. It's just a one minute film. And for the film board, the the financial investment is pretty modest. So, you know, when I started Hot House, when we started Hot House, I said, look, if, if we have a 60% success rate, I'll be happy. I think we've, we you know, I think most of the hot house films these days are pretty successful, so we're well over sixty percent. Um, but yeah, that was that really was uh, was the impetus, and um, you know, further to to uh, to my lament about you know it was it was a bit of a closed shop and a bit hard to get new new talent in. Um, the hot house became a way for us to canvass folks who might. Not otherwise, even think about the film board from across the country to uh to send us a one page proposal and um you know for us to get to know every year or every other year uh six very interesting uh differently talented uh animation folks uh to come and you know our over the over the twelve editions. I would say easily two-thirds of those filmmakers have continued to work with the film board in some way, either as filmmakers or as parts of teams. So, you know, it's... uh, I think just in terms of those things, of uh, being able to crank out these interesting tidbits of films um, and not breaking filmmakers... That has been huge, and um, just meeting, you know, almost a hundred uh, different filmmakers we probably wouldn't have met before. Um, that get uh, maybe it's even over a hundred. Uh, that has been, um, you know, that's been such a great success.
0: So you've left this legacy at the National Film Board. You're, you know, now retired. What well what, what are you doing now? What's Michael spending his days on now? What's what's coming in the future?
1: <laughs> well, you know, I'm doing podcasts. Um, <laughs> well, I'm doing one podcast so far. Um, you know, mostly it's it's just I'm I'm clearing, uh, I'm clearing my spirit as it were. So uh, I'm trying not to think about animation. Um, uh, I'm doing a little bit of mentoring for the National Screen Institute right now. They have a, they have an Indigenous program, and so I'm I'm uh, trying to give back uh, some of my expertise to an, a young Indigenous creator. Um, uh, you know, I I now have time. You know, twenty twenty one is great because I now have loads of time. And so many of the festivals are virtual and are offering a lot of their uh, panels and uh, presentations and things uh, virtually around the world. So I've actually been watching um, a lot of uh, different panels and presentations, Hot Docs, um, uh, VIF. I'm looking forward to a Spark coming up, uh, you know fantasy all of these things so it's been uh, it's it's been great I haven't had to I haven't had to be anxious about projects or people but I've been able to enjoy uh the folks who who have been successful enough to get into those festivals
0: I'm curious is is there um is there a, a want or do you feel like at some point you'll go back to making movies will you make another film
1: you mean as a as a hands-on creator no i i don't think so you know it's it's been such a long time uh that i've been a creator um uh, you know really my brain is now wired uh as a producer uh, i you know it would take quite a bit of re uh repatching to um to get me to think about life as a creator and you know, to be honest, Marina, technology has really passed me by, mm. and um, I haven't kept up with uh, the technology of creation. So, um, so now it's not really in my—it's uh, not really in me anymore. I—I I have told a couple of filmmakers, a couple of my f- most favorite filmmakers, I have told them that I would be willing to um, uh, to help produce or executive produce them in the future but not for the next little while.
0: Yes, I mean, but you're still a creative person. I'm curious, how do you um, uh, stay creative? And, you know, now you're kind of, it feels like you're in a place where you're sort of rebooting your creative juices and taking in all of this content in a different way, like without those pressures of it being a job. Um, Is that, that kind of does that kind of keep you like motivated and creative and how do you actively stay creative like d- do you draw still at all or you know what's your sort of outlet for creativity um well you know I I I write
1: I, I just write a journal I don't write professionally um but I write and um I'm Generally, I generally find myself writing about films that I've watched, so I'm trying to I'm trying to keep my critical eye in that way, um, and it's it's been fun because you know I can be as uh, I can be as, as honest as I want to be. I you know I don't have to be diplomatic, or I'm supportive when I'm writing these journal entries. So, um, so that's been, that's been great fun. Um, you know, yeah, these, you know, participating virtually in these festivals is keeping my juices going and is exciting different parts of, uh, of my brain. Um, so, you know, documentary, uh, uh, ironically, I started with an animated documentary and now 30 years later, um, you know, I'm spending my uh, most of my time watching and thinking about documentary uh, filmmaking, and that's you know just the, the process of the synaptic process of changing my brain from an animation brain to something a little bit more like a documentary brain has been uh, has kept me uh, has kept me interested and creative, and um, you know I I live in a very old house in the country that requires a lot of uh creative and inventive repair work <laughs> and so you know f- for 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 not a whole lot of money so that is keeping my hand in as well
0: your engineering brain is back at work
1: right it's 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 so funny how the circle uh, closes in on itself like that
0: <laughs> uh, it sure is. I'm, I'm curious I- have you thought about making, maybe making a live action documentary?
1: I've, I've, I've thought about, um, I think about producing one. Mm. I don't think I could make one
0: though. You're the producer now.
1: Yeah. I, I my brain really is a producer's, uh, producer's brain. I think, you know, I think I, I would be afraid of being in, the, of getting in the trenches. Maybe that's it. Maybe i like, I like the one step removed. Um, uh, too much now, to be honest.
0: Well, you've been in the trenches for a very long time. So I think, <laughs> I think you've earned a break.
1: <laughs> oh, well, thank you for letting me Marina.
0: <laughs> so I, I you, you know, to, kind of to, to wrap things up, I, I'm curious, you have, you've had such a an interesting career and such a rich career and you've left behind such an amazing legacy, but I, I'm curious if, if you would, do anything different if you were to do it all over again? Would you, would it be something that you would do differently?
1: Oh, yeah. I, you know, early in my producing career at the NFB, I probably would have been more assertive and more aggressive about, um, but my desire to open the door to, uh, New and different voices, you know, not just not just uh, around racial diversity, but even just around new unheard voices. I think I was, uh, I think for the first few years of my career, I was, um, I was a little bit too careful and take, I was a little bit too concerned about how the NFB would be able to respond. I should have just what the NFB needs to respond, and I should have been more assertive.
0: Well, you got there in the end. That's what's important. took a long time. <laughs> the, the, the struggle is really you never stopped. And I think, <laughs> I think we're all better for it. Both the, both the, 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 the creative uh, powers that be at the National Film Board and the, the, us, the, the general audience that takes in those projects, many of the times not even realizing the struggle that goes on behind the scenes to have those projects there for us to look at. So thank you. From, from a film fan, thank you for fighting that good fight.
1: Well, thank you very much, Marina. You're very kind.
0: And that was my conversation with Michael Fukushima. You can watch many of the films that Michael worked on over the course of his career, including his short film, Minoru Memory of Exile, at the National Film Board's website, nfb.ca. The SparkCast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits, as well as additional production support by Michael Edland. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.